strain, crack, and sometimes break under the burden, under the tension, slip, slide, perish, decay with imprecision, will not stay in place, will not stay still. I'm your host, Kryn Hanald, from Indented Out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. In this episode, we will be discussing the history and evolution of the English language and the impact it has had on literature. If you've been interested in learning a little bit more in depth on the history of English, think of this as a crash course. Today, we're here with Dr. Stephen Hall and Dr. Emily Ransom, both from the English department. Dr. Hall teaches courses on medieval literature, and Dr. Ransom is the resident Shakespearean. Dr. Hall loves to teach the history of the English language class, and Dr. Ransom loves teaching the literature of suffering, the Renaissance, and especially the Oxford travel course. For the first segment, we're going to be talking about the evolution of English. Just a broad question, what are some of the influences that shape the English language that you would kind of pinpoint? Well, it depends on how far back you want to go. Uh, English is a Germanic language. It derives from a group of tribes who moved from essentially northern Germany, southern Denmark, moved over during the sort of the end of the Roman occupation of Britain, and the Anglo-Saxons, Jutes, and Frisians essentially moved in and kicked butt, nudged the Celtic peoples to the fringes, and established what we call Angleland or England now. So... It's, uh, if you want to go back that far, one of the things that shaped the English language and made it distinct from other Germanic languages was that it became an insular language. Uh, it was isolated on the island of Britain. Uh, after that, you can say that um, around 800 uh, to around 1,000, there were numerous uh, Scandinavians moving in, and I think that's one of the biggest influences on the structure of English. Not vocabulary-wise, there was quite a few Scandinavian vocabulary words, but the actual structure of sentences. Syntax became much more fixed. English essentially became a creole of Scandinavian and English. And some scholars don't like to talk about that because they like to talk about the purity of English. Well, English is not pure at all. It is, it is a creole. Uh, after that, I mean, you know, some scholars will point to the Norman invasion and say this changed the language uh, significantly, and, and it did in terms of vocabulary, but the structure didn't change that much. The structure of Old English had already broken down by the end of the Old English period, by the time the French invaded. So we, we, we learned how to speak in essentially two different languages, English and French, but English remained English. If you divide it between the spoken language and the written language, the spoken language changes much more quickly. Written language is much more conservative, and it's usually just the property of an elite few. So if we really wanted to study the evolution of the English language, we would like to have you know, recordings of the way people talked rather than just text. But unfortunately, we have to do what I call a little bit of linguistic archaeology, and we have to look at these artifacts, these texts, these manuscripts, and try to figure out how well that represents what people were actually saying. The Middle English period is wonderful because we have manuscripts in numerous dialects, which helps us you know, realize that some of the influence of the Old Norse speakers uh, which was creeping down from the north, eventually made it to the south uh, mm -hmm. because they were just useful things like you know, pronouns, they, them, and their. In Old English, it was he, him, and her. I mean, that's pretty dang confusing. In Old English, it was heo for she. Well, where do we get she? Um, the Old Norse speakers are trying to figure out which she people are talking about, so they'd use the demonstrative feminine pronoun, seo, and then heo, and you put the two together and you get sheo. And by Chaucer's time, show or show was the, the dominant form. So it's pretty clear that, that Norse gave us quite a bit uh, in terms of, you know, uh, just making the language much more understandable for, 
for more people. Um, after that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Ransom because the printing press came along and screwed everything up. <laughs> <laughs> One could say it screwed everything up. One can also say it simplified things because, indeed, for a lot of people, when they take Dr. Hall's classes in Beowulf or Chaucer, they scratch their heads initially and say, that doesn't sound like English. And I've, I've had people ask me, can we really call that English? And the answer is yes, absolutely, it is English, but it's not the English you recognize. And the invention of the printing press in the mid-15th century did quite a bit to standardize the language and also bring in a wide variety of European influences, making it not quite as uh, insular as it had been before. So it both broadened the English language and standardized it to a great degree. Our notions of standardizing spelling could not have happened before the invention of the printing press. And with a standardized phonetic spelling, some of the pronunciations start to become a little more fixed. So with the invention of the printing press, the size of the English language about doubled in the early modern period from about 100,000 words to 200,000 words. There were a large amount of those are brand new words entering the English language. Some of them invented by our favorite dramatist William Shakespeare who invented somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,700 uh, to 2,000 words. A lot of words that we use every day, the word luggage, for example, that thing that you lug is an invention of William Shakespeare. Some adjectives like horrid, you have the word horror and you can twist it into horrid. Words like countless, the, the number that you cannot count is countless. So Shakespeare was in the business of inventing new words in a playful manner. Some, some words we don't use at all. Some words never caught on, but many, Many words are words that we still use every day. So there, there was a big movement of exploring different uh, syntactical and linguistic flourishes that were alive and well in on the continent to make English capable of doing the kinds of things that continental languages could do. And that did quite a lot to both broaden and solidify English in, in a way that people recognize now you um someone could listen to a shakespeare play and catch what's going on they might call it old english incorrectly but they can identify it as english much easier than uh than they could beowulf so um kind of going back to the printing press that was around the time that the great fellowship occurred press yes. throughout yeah. that area this right? is this is the thing that 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 really irks me <laughs> is that the printing press came along in the middle of the shift and it froze a lot of spellings in their pre-shift form so that nowadays when, when people are learning English and they're trying to figure out our spelling system, they're baffled. Our vowels, we, you know, uh, in Spanish, ah is always ah, right? But we have ah, a, a, uh. Those darn diphthongs. Yeah, well, it, uh, the, the difference, you know, the different qualities that one letter can have, one vowel letter can have in our language, are largely due to the printing press. It, it froze these, these spellings from, say, you know, a, a generation or two after Chaucer and froze it for modern people. So Chaucer would have said April, we say April. And you can hear that the great vowel shift, all of the long vowels went up in the mouth. So ah becomes a, a becomes e. 
So you don't say rhyme, you would say ream, right? If they were already up in the mouth, if you have something like white uh, in modern English, that's a that's a diphthong, i.e. In Middle English, it would have been wheat. So you hear the wheat, the e sound is a high vowel, and it, it actually becomes a diphthong. So the great vowel shift didn't affect short vowels, and people always forget about short vowels because um, in Old English, the word was that, and in Modern English, the word is that, and in Chaucer's time, the word was that. How you like that? <laughs> All right, for segment two, we will be discussing some literature, kind of then and now. So we will be starting with Dr. Hall. Did you have some Old English that you were going to start with? Well, one of the things that I would like to do, I mean, you can, you can go and pick up a book uh, on Old English and, and slog your way through it. But one of the things I would like to show is how the language changed. And I, I said earlier that uh, contact with Norse speakers really influenced the, the breakdown of the English language into what is a much more modern form. So, for instance, in Old English, a Norse speaker or an English speaker meeting in, say, Yorkshire during the, the, the 700s. Say the, the Scandinavian man has moved in and he wants to start farming and he needs to buy a horse. The Old English speaker would say something like, Ich will sellen that horse that dragath mine wagen. All right, that's no problem. I would sell you that horse that drags my wagon. No problem. Now, a Norse speaker would actually say it slightly differently. He would say, It's very close, actually. You've, you've got the mind part. You've got the wagon versus wagon. No problem there. You've even got horse versus hross. That's pretty close. Ek and itch, those are close as well. But the problem here are the word endings, right? So the Norse speaker would say, it, one horse. Old English person would say, that horse. Not to be confused with the horse, because that's plural. Mm-hmm. So the Norse speaker is trying to figure out how many horses he's going to buy from this guy. And what they do is they simplify everything. The breaking points are those bits where you get the that versus the, the in versus it. The different endings are kind of confusing. So what the Old English and Old Norse decided to do was to fix the syntax. Subject first, verb, object. And that's kind of what we have now. The other thing that they decided to do was drop all the the, that, this, then, all of that stuff and just replace it with with the, and that's what we do nowadays. We don't make a distinction. So Old English, the proper Old English had different forms of the for masculine, feminine, and neuter. We don't have that anymore because we had to simplify it. This is, uh, at first it would have been a pidgin language, you know, something that Mm -hmm. the the two uh, groups could, could understand one another. But then it became creolized as the next generation adopts it and starts using it. So I can give you an example. Um, uh, in Old English, you had the plural, stone stanas. So it would be stan stanas, stone stones, right? Uh, you get horse, horse, singular plural. You get ship, shipu. I mean, seriously, who does that anymore, right? You get Well, you get chilled, childru, which is mm-hmm. child, children, right? So we still have a, a remnant of that. But then you had weird ones like, we would say book books. They would have said bulk beige. Mm-hmm. And you think, that's just wrong. So what do we do? We just simplify all of that. We say stone stones, horse horses, book books, ship ships, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this is the influence with of the a North few, speakers. With a few notable exceptions. Exactly. Like yeah. goose geese. Goose geese, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ox, oxen, right? But in Middle English, for instance, the plural of peas was peasin. <laughs> And peas was actually still singular. 
One of the things that, that might make it easy to hear, I'll just read like the first couple of lines of the, the Lord's Prayer. I know this is not necessarily literature unless Dr. Ransom's teaching it. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to hear how the shift from Old English to and, and Old Norse to, to Middle English goes. So uh, in Old English, from, say, around the 11th century, you would have had, Fader ura, thuthe erton hevnum, sithin nama yhalged. To become thin reche, you worthen thin willa on earth and swaswa on hevnum. Una daikum leakin laugh, silla us today. See, even though it's old, it just, it sounds really nice. It sounds really nice. And I can't understand it, but it still sounds nice. (laughs) So by comparison, listen to the Old Norse, and it sounds very similar, and actually um, maybe even a little more familiar. Father var, sao thu erthi hymna, helgist naven thit. Til komathit rike, verdathin villa swa au yurtsem au hymna. Give us idag vartagli broid. That was the Old Norse. Yeah, thankfully, Old Norse gave us, give us today our daily bread, and now we can all not be hungry, right? And if you hear in, in Middle English, um, it's it's very much a combination of these two, in, in a way. Our Father, notice they've switched the order now, right? Our Father, that art in heaven us, hallowed be the name. The kingdom come to be the will done in earth as in heaven. Yev to us this day, or bread over other substance. <laughs> yeah, because we like bread more than other things. Right? <laughs> but it's interesting to hear that um, what we, we actually have substituted this big, long English word, daily, right? Mm-hmm. Each daily is actually how it literally translates to dogly, daily. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting. You can hear it was already breaking down even before the, the French came in. Mm-hmm. along these these grammar lines in the spoken language in Old English and on into Middle English. The emphasis was on communication. The emphasis on was e- ease of communication. And, and I've come up with a, a theory that I like to call the principle of least effort and use the least amount of effort to get what you want. So I think that the language was already breaking. The best part about it is, though, once you simplify the grammar to a certain point, you can start adding all these cool words from French and, and Latin and, and things like that. Thank you, Dr. Hall. Okay, so we're going to be talking a little bit about loan words with our professors. Dr. Ransom had a really interesting one that she wanted to start out with. One of my favorite loan words comes from India. There's a region in India called Punjabi, and the clothing style within that region is referred to as Punjabi. So a woman would wear a Punjabi dress that involves a, uh, a lengthy, perhaps knee length, a lengthy tunic with loose fitting pants. They're beautiful and ornate, and anywhere you go around India where you see them, you refer to them by the region that they came from. They're Punjabi dresses. And after colonialization, after the British came into India and took over for a while, they started wearing clothing like that at bedtime. They would wear Punjabi dresses at bedtime and refer to them as pajamas. So pajama is a loan word from India that comes from colonialization. We have a lot of fun loan words from Irish too. Isn't smithereens a loan Uh, word? (laughs) Um, Sounds like one, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I wouldn't know, but did you have a couple that you wanted to Oh, I, there's too many to talk about, but I can give you a few of my favorites. that, that came in in the Old English period. One, um, the Old English actually weren't completely stubborn when it came to adopting Latin words, and one of the words that they adopted was cheese. 
So that's a good one. Um, they, they, of course, once the once the Christians came to, to England and Christianized England, they adopted a lot of Latin words as part of the service, but they were actually quite stubborn. So instead of evangelium, which is the Latin word for the you know the the gospels? Um, we still have the word gospels, which um, in Old English was God spell, which was either good or God, and then spell, and that I don't know if that's voodoo or or if it's you know <laughs> writing or something like that. So it's interesting that, that they were stubborn in many respects there. But some of my favorites come in and during the the Norse period, and we still use these incessantly today. So for instance, uh, I mentioned earlier, um, she. Thanks to the Norse, we have a feminine pronoun, they, them, and their. Thanks to the Norse, we have uh, third-person pronouns that are actually gender indistinct, which is really nice now, right? Um, but two, I'll just give you two. The verbs get and take come from Old Norse. Now, that doesn't sound all that exciting until you start putting prepositions with them. And this is a particularly Scandinavian thing to do. In Old Norse, if you look up get or take, uh, in the dictionary, you will have six pages worth of stuff. How does it change it when you use a preposition? Well, it's easy. You can take up something. You can take in something. You can take off. You can take out. You can take down. You can take over. You can take under. I'm not sure how you do that, but you could, right? You can take with. You can take to something. You can get in. You can get out. You can get off. You can get over. You can get on. You can get up. And this was a Norse construction. Angles and Saxons really did not do, but we do it all the time. So thanks to the Vikings once again. People think that they were, were just a bunch of violent people, and they were. But they, they did uh, contribute to our language significantly. See, when you say get and, get and take, like all I can picture is uh, really old people just pointing and say take, take or something like because they, right. they want it or something right. like that. The other interesting sort of linguistic fossil that, that we have are the words husband and wife. Mm-hmm. Husband is an old Norse word, husbondi. It's a, a farmer, a bondi, who owns a house, a hus. Weef is the Old English word. And I can imagine how this came about, right? Lots of Scandinavian men moving in, marrying Old English women. The Old English word for woman was, was weef. That was one of them anyway. Weefman, right? Mm-hmm. So you can almost imagine, you know, the Scandinavian man um, sits down and he says to his wife, who he's not calling that yet, he says, Kona, get, you mean, uh, get my ale. Right? <laughs> and she says, after having thought about it for a second, who in the world is this Kona person, right? Um, and she points at herself and says, "Weef, get you, get it yourself." Because <laughs> so, she's picked up the word "get" now, which is a great word. Yeah. <laughs> but she sticks with the with the wife part. I personally like French loan words because they add a little. I, I feel like they add a little bit of elegance to our language since mm-hmm. it's kind of it takes from like all languages, and mm-hmm. so it's almost just kind of little bit of this, a little bit of that. And so we have words like mansion and mm-hmm. cafe and stuff like that that makes it a little bit mm-hmm. nicer sounding. <laughs> well, and in fact, the the very fact that you think it's nicer sounding, that you think it's more elegant, does reflect how the French words entered into the English language. Most of the Anglo-Saxon words become The words that are more rustic, the simple words, the words you learn as kids, whereas the the upper class, the people who need to be able to speak in court, would be using the French words. And so we end up with a host of synonyms in the English language in which you associate the French word as being the more eloquent word, simply because of those connotations of how they entered the language. 
we maintain the word king from Anglo-Saxon and we brought in the word prince from the French. Prince sounds more more eloquent. When we translate Machiavelli, we, we call it the prince. We don't call it the king because the king just sounds simpler. We maintain words like pig from the Anglo-Saxon and we use pork from the French. So when it's something nice on your table, when it's the beef, uh, the pork, as opposed to the cow or the chicken uh, that the farmers are have, have their hands all dirty in, then we use the, the, the nicer English French. Farmers. <laughs> the English farmers. By the time it makes it to the French lord's table, it has the French name. It's been processed. Yeah. <laughs> this is called Wolf and Ed Watcher from the Exeter book. And it is an elegy. Um, it, it contains heroic elements. Uh, it is a, a Frauenlieder, a woman's song. Uh, and I teach it in my medieval women class as well as the history of the English language class because um, there, there's only one word in there that indicates it as female speaker, but um, the female experience of, of war, of perhaps an arranged marriage uh, is there. So this is this is heroic, but it's also elegiac uh, in some sense. And I, I would even just call it wisdom poetry. It's a uh, woman's experience. Uh, and I won't read the whole thing, but I'll just give you some uh, some highlights of it. It's only uh, 18 lines long, but, but there you go. This poem is, is kind of, uh, in some sense, like a Shakespearean sonnet. Every single word is important. That was there in Old English um, as well. A lot of Old English poetry is narrative. Leorum is minum, swirchehim mon lak giva. Willeth he hina athergen, give hay on thread kimeth, ungeliches us. So to my people, it's as if someone gives them um, a sacrifice or a gift or a battle. That word is really hard to translate, lak. Um, they will consume him if he comes into the troop. I have no idea who he is at this point, but the woman seems to know. And then her, the next line is, um, it is improper for us, or it is different for us. There's another, uh, and it has one of the, the saddest last lines. Um, and it's essentially, it's either about a, um, a lover or a mother who has been separated from her son or her lover named Wolf. And it's, it's impossible to really tell, but the last line is, that mon that so that may easily be torn apart, which never was joined together, our song together. Oh, that is sad. So Old English had its fair share of sadness and its fair share of lyric poetry. And then it's got poems like Beowulf and the Battle of Malden, which are uh, very heroic. Um, but the, the lyric seems, seems to have taken over. You know, after Chaucer's day with the, the long narrative poetry and whatnot, um, eventually, um, you know, Shakespeare comes along and is still using poetry, and it becomes narrative still, right? So the poetry didn't just cease to be narrative and cease to be even heroic um, after the Old English period. Um, that we may be able to talk about some other distinctions between old and middle and modern English poetry in a little bit. But I'll turn it over to Professor Ransom because she's going to talk a little bit more about this idea of lyric poetry. Yes. After the invention of 
print, the profile of lyric starts to change. It's not that people started writing lyric for the first time in the early modern period. They're, they're Middle English lyrics written on the margins of manuscripts all over the place. They just weren't necessarily considered highbrow literature, uh, one could say. The printing press came to England in the 15th century. Caxton in, created the first printing press in uh, Westminster Abbey in London in 1476. The first thing he printed was English highbrow literature. He printed a collection of Chaucer. Chaucer's Canterbury Tales was the first thing printed in English. And print became associated with solidified literature, with great authors. You would print collections of uh, the poetry of Homer, uh, for example. And Translated uh, into English. Translated into English, even, uh, especially as Renaissance poets were trying to stretch the dexterity of the English language, show that English could handle complex sentences. It, it, I, I suppose it always could, but they were specifically trying to imitate various Latinate Italian forms. In the midst of that, there became a culture of coterie poetry, uh, poetry passed along in manuscript among buddies, especially into the reign of Queen Elizabeth. But even beginning during Henry VIII, the poet uh, would try to get a court position by producing poetry that praised his monarch, poetry that showed seduction of a beautiful woman became especially uh, especially popular during the reign of Queen Elizabeth as people are trying to cater the favor of this unattainable virgin queen. As that type of poetry became more and more popular, it started to become printed more and more often. And so uh, a type of poetry that might have been reduced to the margins literally in the Middle Ages uh, written on the margins of manuscripts suddenly became collected in larger works. In, in some cases with cutesy names like Paradise of Dainty Devices or um, things like that. But then oftentimes when a, a great poet would die, they would collect his works, Philip Sidney's poems or John Donne's poems. And and as the sonnet became more and more popular, this tight, concise, 14-line form of poetry started to mandate the way people thought of poetry. Poetry was, was something that packed as much meaning into as few words as possible. And it's very telling that the longest epic in the 16th century was half-finished at about 35,000 lines, Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen, only half finished. He died before he could finish it at 35,000 lines. And, and Beowulf was only just over 3,000 lines. <laughs> and then in the 17th century, the great English epic of the 17th century, Milton's Paradise Lost, was only roughly around 10,000. So the change to poetic taste that happened because of the lyric even affect the, the longer narrative forms. Even, even longer narrative poetry is also supposed to flourish in its concision rather than its copiousness. And that's when people started getting really rhythm and meter kind of um, iambic pentameter with Shakespeare. And I forget what Milton did, but... Uh, Milton did blank verse, so it's I iambic pentameter still. Uh, okay. It's just unrhymed, okay. unrhymed iambic pentameter. Mm -hmm. But granted, iambic pentameter became thought of as a quintessentially English uh, rhythm with Chaucer. Wanda rapro with a sota, 
the Drota march at Persid to the Rota. Oh, I can hear that. <laughs> you, you, you can hear that, yeah. that uh, strong iambic meter. And, and yeah. Chaucer wrote, normally in heroic couplets, he wrote uh, other, other forms too. Mm-hmm. So in the, in the Renaissance, a lot of poets, while they're, while they're looking to Italy and trying to bring in Italian forms, they're also looking back and looking at Chaucer. They're not just reinventing the wheel. They're, they're celebrating Chaucer, who had been a contemporary of the Italian, the great Italian Renaissance poets like Petrarch and Boccaccio. So that there's, a, uh, there's an amalgamation of European styles that are happening throughout the early modern period. But, and a great part of that is the celebration of the sonnet. Uh, which, as you identified, does use iambic pentameter, rhymed iambic pentameter. The rhyme shifts. Uh, Petrarch wrote in a very difficult rhyme scheme for English poets to imitate. It's A B B A A B B A C D E C D E is kind of the standard Petrarchan sonnet, which means that the first eight lines use only two rhymes. Uh, which which is, in Italian is easy, O or A or E. <laughs> super easy in Italian, enormously difficult in English. So during the reign of Henry VIII, a poet like uh, Sir Thomas Wyatt tried really hard to imitate uh, Petrarch's rhyme scheme. Uh, And if you read Wyatt's sonnets, the language is awkward and uncomfortable. And so his contemporary Henry Howard, the Earl of Surrey, thought, well, if English is more difficult to rhyme why don't we ease up the rhyme scheme a bit and he gave the standard sonnet form he invented the standard sonnet form that we call the shakespearean sonnet even though it's two generations before shakespeare um uh, a b a b c d c d e f e f g g much easier to do in english than the a b b a a b b a of course old english had alliterative poetry with the rhyme at the front end And it was it was a little bit more um, about the the rhythm, the stress, rather than the total number of syllables in a line. So you had essentially like a, a, a rapper trying to fit as many syllables as possible in sometimes into just four beats in a musical bar. And Old English was much more like music than it was counting the number of syllables. Uh, that's not to say that lyric poetry is not musical, mm-hmm. but uh, Old English, you know... Um, would have been much more concerned with stresses, with beats in a line. And the syllables could be crammed into those beats. So um, I I could give examples if you wanted to, but we're probably running out of time. (laughs) (laughs) And and there are also a lot of uh, great examples of poets who try to do both. Mm -hmm. Um, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is a great example of a uh, a, a mostly alliterative poem that has uh, a, a tag has at the r- end that rhyme. uses rhyme. Yeah. Um, the rhyme was more associated with the with the court, with the French influence, whereas the alliterative poetry um, was kind of a hangover from from the old English period, from the Anglo-Saxons. And somebody like the Gawain poet, who was pretty clearly from somewhere like Cheshire, uh, by by his dialect, was trying to do a bit of both. He wasn't just a country bumpkin; he could also do some rhyme. <laughs> And then a poet in the Renaissance like Edmund Spencer, who's trying to evoke medievalism, Mm -hmm. is writing rhyme poetry in a really complex stanza form that Spencer himself invented and using iambic pentameter. And yet he is uh, trying to bring in alliteration, chalks his lines full of alliteration to try to evoke that medievalism. Now, archaic forms of words as well. I mean, he was really hearkening back to, to Chaucer and, and Pryor. 
for those who might want to learn more, uh, Dr. Hall and Dr. Ransom, are there books that you would recommend for those who would uh, like to learn a little bit more in depth? I, there are several history of English language textbooks, none of which are actually acceptable. I always, you know, sort of pick the cheapest one and then supplement everything with handouts. Um, I, I enjoy doing that much more. But one of the books that I particularly like that didn't go so well in class the one time I used it, but I think it's the best book on the history of the English language, is The Stories of English by David Crystal uh, because he focuses uh, really a lot on dialect, which linguists call variety. Uh, and he suggests that there's not one main story of the evolution of English, but that there are many stories. Uh, and so, yeah, in terms of um, the best book on the history of English language, I'd say get David Crystal's Stories of English. Uh, it's highly readable. It's it's hard to go wrong with Shakespeare, that's for sure. Um, and as far as the eloquence of language, I I would have a hard time finding a play I appreciate better than King Lear. In King Lear, he he brings in a lot of uh, a lot of philosophical and theological questions that he packs jam packs into some really tight lines, such as uh, the the great line as flies to wanton boys, so are we to the gods. They kill us for their sport, which he pulled right out of Greek tragedy uh, and, and which had been translated into English before in a much looser appendage way. Uh, and Shakespeare managed to cram it into some, some really tight space. A, a great poet that doesn't get nearly enough attention is uh, a Jesuit poet in the late 16th century named Robert Southall. And Southall actually highly influenced the later development of metaphysical poetry. Poets like John Donne and George Herbert and Christopher Marlowe. And, and it's fair just to read a stanza. We're coming up on Christmas, so I'll read a stanza from one of his uh, Christmas poems in, called New Heaven, New War. Come to your heaven, you heavenly choirs. Earth hath the heaven of your desires. Remove your dwelling to your God. A stall is now his best abode. Sith men their homage do deny. Come angels, all their faults supply. His chilling cold doth heat require. Come, seraphims, in lieu of fire. This little ark no cover hath. Let cherub wings his body swath. Come, Raphael, this babe must eat. Provide our little Toby meat. And as the poem goes on, he packs in the paradoxes of, of cold and heat, of strength and weakness into, into each line. And, and it's a, a, a beautiful way of crafting theological paradoxes within tightly construed English verse. So now if you want to read something uh, at your Christmas gathering, you have an idea. New heaven, <laughs> new war. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Stephen Hall and Dr. Emily Ransom. If you want to get a hold of our guests, visit the UWGB English faculty page. Indented was produced by Sing Yi Tao out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Our podcast art was created by Kimberly Vlees. Sheep's Head Review is now closed for submissions. We will be having a launch party for the Fall Journal in December. Keep an eye out to get a free copy of this semester's student talent. For more English department happenings, visit uwgb.edu English.